Luke 23 and verse 50. If you've been with us through our services this week, we've worked through uh, all the passion events of the week through the death of Jesus. But today we look at the resurrection. We're going to begin by looking first at his burial in Luke 23.50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in linen, a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them like an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Let's pray. Lord, open our eyes to see wonderful things from your word. Give us ears to hear. Cause our hearts to be open. Lord, that's a work only you can do. And so we pray that you would use your word today to speak to us, cause us to hear to learn, to grow, to be moved in greater faith and greater love for you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. One of the very first things that was deeply encouraging to me when we visited here the first time was your singing, the congregational singing. So I want to thank you. And today it was rich. It's good to be up here to hear the strong singing. So thank you. I scrapped my introduction this morning when I read uh, my devotional. And I'm going to read to you from that instead because it struck me. And I hope that it will serve as a great way, a better way than what I could say or write myself. Uh, Paul Tripp's devotion, if any of you read New Morning Mercies. Uh, You'll find it encouraging. This is what was today's, or part of today's. It's not just the most important miracle ever. It's not just the most astounding event in the life of the Messiah. It's not just an essential item in your theological outline. It's not just the reason for the most important celebratory season of the church. It's not just your hope for the future. No, the resurrection is all that and more. It is also meant to be the window through which you view all of life. 
Let me read that again. It is also meant to be the window through which you view all of life. 2 Corinthians 4, 13 captures this truth very well. We know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. The resurrection is a big deal. And it, it um, hopefully will be something that captures our heart again this morning. You know, the resurrection, Easter, Christmas, these stories can be, become so familiar uh, that we, 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 we fail to see the significance So let's look at God's word and again be reminded of what happened that Sunday morning many years ago. We're looking at the life of Joseph of Arimathea, a man that we don't know very much about. This is the only place that's recorded of him in scripture. And if we had time to read the entire account of the Passion Week, we would have seen that the way Luke structures this is he portrays the acts of evil men all throughout the preceding chapter, so that when he comes to this place in his gospel, that the life of Joseph and subsequently the life of the women who were there is juxtaposed against the life of all of those who did such atrocious things. It causes him and the women to stand out. Luke describes him as a good and righteous man, verse 50. We're also told that he's Jewish. He's a member of the council, which is the Sanhedrin. This is the high court of the the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, made up of priests and elders and scribes. This is the court that had much greater power uh, before the Roman occupation, but under the Roman occupation, it still had a great deal of power, as we'll see, uh, or as we have seen as we've looked through the account, but we'll be reminded of. This is the court that condemned Jesus to death but didn't have the power to execute him. But they kept pressing and pressing and pressing on Pilate to carry out the execution. The Romans alone had the power to execute, and this is why Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. Remember, Pilate didn't find any fault in Jesus, and he even washed his hands of that guilt in a public display. So this demonstrates the considerable power that the Sanhedrin had even over the Roman occupying force, that they put that much pressure that Pilate would have allowed and even had to order the execution of Jesus. Luke tells us in verse 51 that Joseph had not consented to their decision and action to execute Jesus. And because other Gospels tell us the decision was unanimous, most scholars believe that he was absent in protest. And there may have been others with him, although they would have been few. Joseph was called a good and righteous man. Was he indeed good and righteous? Was he good because he didn't go along with the Sanhedrin? Was he good because he took the body of Jesus and buried it in his own tomb? Scripture tells us that none are righteous, no, not one. So how then is Joseph called a good and righteous man? I I mean, you may have wondered this before when you see other passages of Scripture where people are called good or righteous and you think, there's none righteous, no, not one. You know, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I mean, the reality is, is that not one of us can stand and say, I am righteous. I'm without sin. Except by the grace of God. Through faith in Him. This is who Joseph of Arimathea was. A man of faith. 
Faith solely on God, being gracious toward him, being credited with the righteousness that is a gift because he trusted God. So those in Scripture who are called righteous are men and women of faith. They're falling on God's grace alone, knowing that they don't have a leg on which to stand. And as verse 51 points out, he was looking for the kingdom of God. Again, a phrase that Luke uses of others. But weren't all Jews, weren't all good Jews looking for the kingdom of God? Weren't the disciples, Jesus even corrected them again and again, because weren't they looking for the kingdom of God? But again, we see a difference of those who were looking for a physical, earthly, political kingdom and those who, like Joseph of Arimathea, had eyes of faith, looking for the kingdom of God that was really the reign of God in human hearts and lives. This is what set Joseph apart. Faith is the hallmark of Joseph's life, and even though Luke doesn't use that word to describe him, that's what he points to as a good and righteous man according to his faith, looking for the kingdom of God by faith. And we see this throughout Scripture. Even in Genesis, as far back as Genesis 15, we look at the life of Abram, and he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Similarly, others are called good and righteous. Luke uses the same description of Simeon, the one who was told he would not see death until the Messiah had come. And when Jesus was brought to the temple, he held him up and said, uh, or uh, gave that prophecy that this was indeed the Messiah. Zechariah and Elizabeth, Cornelius, Barnabas, guys that we'll see in a few weeks as we work our way through Acts, were called good and righteous. Simeon and Anna were also described as looking for the kingdom of God. These are men and women of faith. And the proof of that faith, though, is there's fruit. There's fruit from faith. And a lot of times we get those backwards and we try and do good works and actions and as if we can earn any credit before God. But the reality is true faith produces true fruit. And this is what we see in Joseph's life. He was, in a sense, a secret disciple of Jesus. Uh, up to this point, he um, probably had not revealed, or he, he, he would have been ousted maybe from the council. Uh, but at this point, it, the secrecy is gone. He is no longer a secret disciple. I mean, first of all, he was not a part of their decision to see Jesus executed. And then he also, verse 52, says that he went to Pilate and asked for the body. I mean, this was a bold move to go and to do this. And it also shows us that Joseph had some sense of honor. I mean, a great deal of honor for him to have been able to have access to even ask Pilate. Um, he was no longer in secret. Verse 53 says he took the body of Jesus down off the cross. We know from John's gospel that he had help. Nicodemus, you remember, remember him? All right. He's there with Joseph helping in this act. And Nicodemus brought, John's gospel tells us, 75 pounds of embalming ointments with him. Now, if you're looking for Jesus to rise again, you don't bring embalming, 75 pounds of embalming like, uh, compounds. rather. But think of what the care demonstrates that even though they had forgotten the words of Jesus that he would one day rise again, they took care and they showed honor. He then wrapped the body in linen and laid it in his own tomb, verse 53. And Matthew's gospel tells us that this was indeed his own tomb that had been carved out of rock. It was the tomb of a wealthy man. Only rich people had tombs carved in rock. 
Um, and this one would have been an example of such. And this fulfills a prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah 53. And they made his grave with the wicked. He was crucified with criminals and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. It was a tomb in which no one had ever been laid, verse 53 tells us. You remember the story of the triumphal entry last week and how there was a donkey's foal, one that had never been set on. And we looked back in the Old Testament, we saw how that set apart that animal to be used for a sacred purpose. Even so, this tomb had been unused and could be used for a sacred purpose. Jesus should have been buried with the criminals. And there's some debate over how that was done, but it wasn't with dignity, that's for sure whether it was a shallow grave, as some think, or just being thrown on the the trash heap known as Gehenna, uh, it was not a burial of dignity. But Jesus was buried with dignity among the wealthy, according to ancient prophecy, by the will of God, through his servant, Joseph of Arimathea. We hear nothing else about him. We know nothing more of him. But because he trusted God, his faithful acts were used in a tremendous way. And what an example this is to us in an age in which people strive to create legacies for themselves, a name to be remembered. Joseph just simply trusted God. He has a small mark in history, and that's it. You know, our legacy should be Joseph's legacy. And, and you might think Joseph's legacy was his faith, but, but really Joseph's legacy was not his faith. It wasn't his actions. It wasn't what he did. Joseph's legacy was his God, the one in whom he trusted. And I don't remember who said it. I should have looked it up this week because it came to my mind several times. But someone said something that our, our, our efforts really should be to, to live and serve God and be forgotten. That really should be our, our, our goal in life, just to be faithful, obedient, and be forgotten. And I think this is Joseph's outlook, but look how the Lord used him. His acts not only fulfilled prophecy, probably without him knowing it. But his acts added further to the validity of Jesus' death and ultimately indirectly to his resurrection. Again, look at what he did. The embalming elements that they took, 75 pounds, again, not something. They probably had other help. There were multiple people involved carrying his body from the cross to the tomb, laying it, wrapping it, and so forth. Jesus was indeed dead. And so for those naysayers who would come and would still come in the future and say it was a mistake, Jesus wasn't really dead, he really didn't rise from the dead, Joseph's acts add to the proof that indeed Jesus was dead. They were caring for a dead body. And therefore Jesus did rise from the dead. And Nicodemus and the others who helped. The women here are also mentioned. And they, like Joseph, are contrasted with the evil acts and the evil works of those who crucified Jesus. And there's a few things that we need to notice about them in verses 55 and 56. The women went with Jesus, or with Joseph, rather. They saw the tomb and how the body was laid. Luke gives us those details. They saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Again, naysayers would come and say, the women made a mistake. The next morning they went to the wrong tomb and it was empty and they just assumed that Jesus was risen from the dead. No, the women didn't go to the wrong tomb. John's Gospel tells us the tomb was very close uh, because the Sabbath was coming when Jesus was crucified. They had to prepare the body and get it in the tomb. It was very close to where he was crucified. They didn't go far. And the women saw the tomb 
and where the body was laid, removing any doubt that they had gone to the wrong tomb. They not only knew the location, but they knew how the body was laid. So they knew what to look for the next morning when they went in. And they didn't find an empty tomb. They found a tomb with linen cloths in it, didn't they? Burial clothes. Again, adding to the proof that Jesus had risen from the dead. Notice their actions, verse 56. What did they take with them? More spices and ointments. Do you take that to greet the risen Lord? No. You take that to take care of a dead body. And that was their intention. They did this for a dead man. They had forgotten the words of Jesus. As had the apostles, the disciples, who Luke calls here for the first time apostles, all of his followers had forgotten his words. And then in verse 56, they rested on the Sabbath. This is almost a hinge verse uh, in this account. And I don't want to speculate beyond what the text says, but I know that I can say, for sure, this is not here by mistake. These women honored the law of God. Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And a lot of times we look, you may see the Sabbath coming to worship, having, feeling like you have to be here, feeling like you have to set the day aside, feeling like you have to say no to certain things as some kind of burden, but it's not. This is a gift from God. His law is a gift. His moral law isn't a burden, it's a gift. And certainly we'd agree, from, we'd agree with this if we're talking about stealing or murder or lying, because none of us want to have those things happen to us. And even our secular culture has these things as law. We recognize these are good things, not to steal, not to murder, not to lie. But the Sabbath is also a part of God's moral law and is a gift to us. We need to worship. We need community. We need rest. We need something that disciplines us to stop this frenetic pace in our lives of just going and going and going to see that we are dependent on God, that we need Him, that no amount of energy or determination or even spinning our wheels is ever going to be enough in this life. What does it gain the, a man if he, if he gains... The, what, what profit does it have for a man who gains the whole world and loses his soul, right? And yet, the Sabbath is a reminder of that, that we weren't here to gain the whole world, that we do need to stop that it's okay that God will accomplish all that he needs to without us continuing to spin our wheels. And the Sabbath reminds us that the whole world is in fact passing away. Now we weren't put here to gain this world, we were put here for a world beyond this world. 1 Corinthians 15, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. We will follow Jesus in his resurrection. And that's what we come to next in the text 24, chapter 24, verse, verses 1 to 12. The women go to the tomb. They get up the next morning. Remember, they're carrying these embalming compounds with them. They're going to take care of a dead body, not meet the resurrected Lord. They, had been able, they hadn't been able to finish the work. Sabbath came too quickly. Uh, Joseph and Nicodemus and others got the body of Jesus into the tomb, but it hadn't been completely cared for according to Jew Jewish custom. And so they stopped their work at sundown on Friday, and they rested according to the law. But on sundown on Saturday, they finished their preparation, and first thing the next morning, they get up and they go. And they knew exactly where to go. 
Do you remember why? Because they had seen the tomb and seen exactly how his body was laid. They knew exactly where to go. But they were surprised. What did they find? The Bible says they were even puzzled, or the ESV renders it as perplexed. Now you would have thought Jesus' words would have come back to them. They would have remembered as soon as they saw it. Oh yeah, but it wasn't that way, was it? Because the scales had not been removed from their eyes. So they come there and they're perplexed. What's happened? And then two angels appear. Um, You know, we shouldn't be too hard on the women (laughs) for forgetting any more than we should be hard on the apostles for forgetting because we too forget God's word. Every time we're anxious or fearful or lustful or hateful or unloving or whatever that we struggle with in this life, it's because we forget God's words to us. We forget the comfort and the promise and the hope that he is. So when we suffer, let's not forget Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, you should, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. We've been promised that we will suffer. When we feel alone and forgotten, remembering the words of Deuteronomy 31, be strong and courageous, do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And all those, those were certain specific words spoken to Joshua. Jesus repeats those words to his disciples, and those words are passed on to us. I will never leave you and never forsake you. When we feel overwhelmed by our sin and wonder how we can stand before a holy God, or maybe even doubt our salvation, remembering the words in Romans 10, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So let's not be too hard on them for being perplexed and being surprised because we do the same thing. We have gospel amnesia. We forget God's words. And that's what makes these next words so significant in verse 8. Not only for them, but for us too. And they remembered the words when the angels spoke to them. God, in His mercy, sends a reminder. These two angels appear and they ask them that great rhetorical question, you know, rhetorical questions are really helpful. Parents do this a lot. You remember, as, uh, you know, if you've, if you've been a parent, this is what you do. You know, you, you ask these rhetorical questions and you're not asking for an answer. You know, haven't I told you where to put the laundry? You know, that, you don't need an answer back. What you mean is go pick up the clothes off your floor and put them in the hamper. Rhetorical questions can be very helpful. This is what the angels do. This can also be helpful for us as we kind of self-counsel. Uh, David did this in the Psalms. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The rhetorical question works for the women. It can work for us too. And it's helpful to remind us of the truth that we're anchored to. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you? And we do see over and over through the gospel accounts, Jesus telling his disciples, I have to go to Jerusalem, there I'm going to be crucified, and there I will be raised from the dead on the third day. And verse 8, they remembered his words. This is all of grace. This is all a work of God in his graciousness to remove the scales, to allow them to see. And, you know, we can see this in our own lives, not only at the point of salvation, but even through things. I mean, how many times have we sat in, in just quiet 
uh, in our devotion in our Bible and just seen something that we'd read a hundred times and yet it strikes us as new and fresh and why didn't I ever see that before? Or we read a book or we hear a sermon and something hits us that we've never thought of before. God is gracious to us, pulling back the scales, letting us see. The angels, the words, the remembering, all at the right time, God graciously working in the lives of his people. You know, he could have sent the angels on Friday, right? He could have reminded them Friday when they were grieving. Or think of how much sleep they lost or how many tears they cried all day Saturday. And yet God, who does all things well, sent the angels Sunday morning. Again, take comfort in this, that the same God, who again does all things well in our lives, is doing the same thing in our lives. He doesn't always remove the suffering. In fact, we've already seen it's guaranteed we're going to suffer. We're going to go through difficulties. But he uses these things in our lives. His timing's always perfect. Remember, he's never late. He's rarely early, right? So now the ladies run to tell the, the eleven, along with, there's more there with them we see uh, in verse 9, along with the other disciples of Jesus. And Luke gives us a list of the women, Mary Ma- or some of the women. Mary Magdalene, we know who had anointed Jesus with the costly perfume before his death. Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and other women. And in a society that considered women as second-class citizens, we see both Jesus and this gospel writer give value to these women. And the fact that they were listed here, and the reason, most likely, Luke gives a specific list of two or more women is because that's what Jewish custom required, that there be two or more to be a witness. So the women are listed as witnesses, even though in that day and time, women weren't allowed to be considered witnesses. And yet, both Jesus and the gospel writer here give them that value. Consider that the women were the first humans at least, to announce the resurrection of Jesus. And what did the, how did the apostles respond? Verse 11, they thought they were telling an old wives' tale, that they were just spinning a yarn, right? You can see how even back then, men looking down their noses, they didn't believe. They didn't believe. Again, let's not be too hard on them either because we can see this evidence in our own lives. And what does Peter do? He takes off to see for himself, literally ran to the tomb. And we see in John's gospel that John went with him. They both went. And he stoops in the tomb, and he looks in, and upon seeing it, Peter realizes it. Because he's not perplexed the way the women responded when they saw it, but he's amazed. He leaves marveling, in awe, at what actually happened. It is true. He is raised from the dead. He is alive even before he sees the risen Jesus. And Luke also shows through this account something of their unbelief that becomes also indirect proof of the resurrection. The women weren't going to see a risen Savior. The disciples didn't believe. They they, they were uh, still in grief. They rebuffed the women's account. They weren't willing to believe. Peter didn't believe. He had to run and see for himself. All of this points to the fact that this was not a made-up tale. This was not something that they conspired to do to trick the world. I mean, let alone give their entire rest of their lives to preach the gospel that led to suffering and persecution and death for all of them. J.C. Ryle writes, one of the strongest indirect evidence, evidences that Jesus rose from the dead 
if the disciples were at first so backward to believe our Lord's resurrection and were at last so thoroughly persuaded of its truth that they preached it everywhere, Christ must have risen indeed. The first preachers were men who were convinced in spite of themselves and in spite of determined, obstinate unwillingness to believe that we see in this text. If the apostles at last believed, the resurrection must be true. I don't want you to think that the resurrection is just some ancient story or a tradition, or even as as a Christian that, you know, how does it really matter? 1 Corinthians 15 makes it clear that everything hangs on the resurrection. Listen to Paul's words. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it be true that the dead are not raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Everything hinges on the resurrection. We believe in the resurrection because it's the proof of victory over death, which would otherwise be our greatest enemy. And if we look at the world around us, it is the world's greatest enemy, fighting at every turn to try and resist death and to prolong life. People in fear of death. We believe in the resurrection because it's the pinnacle of redemptive history, proving that God is both a truth-teller and faithful to His promises. We believe it because it's the hinge for the future, because if Jesus has not been raised, then He cannot return. There are, of course, many other reasons that we could list. But we do well not to forget the words of Jesus, but like the women, to remember his words. And this is where I want to leave us today. To remember God's word. To be like the women and remember what he said. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? But if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Remember his words. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of, his age, end of the age. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Remember his words. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Remember His words. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Remember His words. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for the resurrection of Jesus, that it is the power over sin and death that it is proof that we do have a future and a hope that goes beyond this world. So Lord, like the women and like the apostles eventually, pull back the scales from our eyes and help us to see the reality of the resurrection, the reality of your reigning here and now, that your kingdom has come. And yes, we wait for it to come in its fullness, Lord, but give us eyes to see that this this is reality, that this life is not all that there is, that we don't have to fret and to worry and to try and figure it all out now. But Lord, we just need to remember your words and to trust you that you are at work, that you are faithful, that the one who made the promises and then kept every promise 
and delivered a Messiah who would indeed save his people from their sins. Lord, you're the same God that we worship today. And so help us to be confident in you that you are continuing to do all things for our good and for your glory. So cause your words to ring in our ears as we go today and throughout this week that we would remember your words as we celebrate the risen Christ. In his name I pray, amen.